What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Stocks have been in the red all day long after Russian troops occupied that nuclear plant in Ukraine. The Dow is now on pace for its fourth straight week of losses, and European stocks just posted their worst week since March of 2020. If you were hoping for a swift resolution of Russia's war on Ukraine, well, Russian expert Nina Khrushcheva is back with us, and she says the war is helping Putin's popularity at home. What about oil? Could the world really do without Russian supplies? And what would it cost if we had to? We'll hear from someone who says $200 a barrel is the price of freedom. Meanwhile, another super strong jobs report. 678,000 jobs added. We'll talk about jobs and wages and what it all means for the Fed with Jason Furman. But we begin with stocks falling sharply, though look, Dom, well off our lows. Well off the lows. And maybe part of that is the narrative around just what's happening with the overall market and Russia and Ukraine. And maybe a little of that has to do with the jobs numbers that Kelly just alluded to. This notion, though, that we had a jobs report that probably was the least scrutinized jobs report that we've had in recent memory because of the tensions and the war in Russia and Ukraine right now is probably permeating through the markets. But yes, well off the session lows. We're only down about a half a percent right now for the Dow Industrials, uh, less than 200 points to the downside. 43.31, the last trade for the S&P 500, 30 points to the downside there off about three quarters of one percent in the Nasdaq composite. The underperformer down about one and a quarter percent, but well off at session lows. 13,370, the last trade there, down roughly 167 if you like to look at points. Now, if you look at one of the weaker spots in the market right now, it has to be consumer discretionary. And specifically, some of these names tied to apparel and maybe the luxury side of things. PVH Corporation's down nearly 10 percent. Ralph Lauren down 6 percent. Tapestry. The company formerly known as Coach down about 6% right now. Capri Holdings, the company known as, formerly known as Michael Kors, down about 12%. And even the big ETF, the XRT, that tracks retail on a more equal weight basis is still down about 1.5% right now. So keep an eye on some of those retail consumer discretionary names showing some real signs of weakness right now. You can lump in travel and some of those booking names to so that's that list as well. And then... Taking a look at that macro trade now from a risk proxy perspective, the 10-year Treasury note yield, government bonds, especially in the U.S., are the place people go to in times of turmoil. They want to seek safety. They want to seek that safe harbor. Over the course of the last one week, though, you can see that range. Again, the lows that we saw were roughly about 168 during the course of this week here. We are now up to about 174. But over the last week, there has been a more at least shorter to medium term buying of the safety of government debt, pushing those yields lower, despite the fact that inflation continues to run at multi-decade lies highs. So again, the jobs report, hot inflation, oil prices, food prices on the rise, yet people are still flocking to the safety of government bonds. Kelly, yields right now on the 10-year, 174. I'll send things back over to you. That's a good place to leave it, Don. Thank you so much. All right, lots of headlines out of Russia and Ukraine this hour. Ukrainian President Zelensky speaking just moments ago, urging Europeans to take to the streets in support of Ukraine. Meantime, the Russian envoy to the U.N. saying nothing is threatening the safety of Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Let's get to Eamon Javers for all the latest details out of Washington. Eamon? 
That's right, Kelly. Just within the past couple of minutes, we heard from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kiev. He held a moment of silence and speaking in Ukrainian, he asked people to continue to fight the Russians and said he is sure that Ukraine will prevail in the conflict. Meanwhile, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield called on Russia to withdraw forces from the nuclear plant that they attacked last night and to allow medical treatment for injured personnel and to ensure operators have full access to the site. By the grace of God, the world narrowly averted a nuclear catastrophe last night. Russia's attack last night put Europe's largest nuclear power at grave risk. It was incredibly reckless and dangerous. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken praised the quick and decisive response so far from the European Union, but said the key to this is going to be keeping the pressure up over time, especially because it seems like things could get worse in Ukraine before they get better. We have to sustain this until it stops, until the war is over, the Russian forces leave, the Ukrainian people regain their independence, their sovereignty, their territorial integrity. We're committed to doing that. And Kelly Blinken also underscored the emotional nature of the Western response to the tragedy, saying officials were motivated by the Ukrainian foreign minister who showed diplomats pictures from Ukraine, including one of a father grieving over the body of his dead child with blood still on the sheets that draped her, he said. Blinken said that was a reminder of what the Western effort is all about, Kelly. And what should we expect out of Washington as for next steps here, Eamon? Well, the next thing we're going to see is we are likely to see a, a President Biden show up on camera. This is a previously scheduled event related to the economy, but we expect he'll get some questions here about Ukraine, the potential U.S. response. We know that the president was just on the phone uh, with the leader of Poland just within the past few moments. So Biden uh, clearly coordinating the Western allies uh, and trying to make sure that there is a united European-American response to this. We'll wait and see uh, any details about what that response will be. But we heard from NATO earlier today, Kelly, saying uh, no matter what we saw at the nuclear plant, what we've seen so far, NATO is not going to put boots on the ground and not going to put planes in the sky in Ukraine for fear of a wider European war. All right, Eamon, for now, thank you. Our Eamon Javers in Washington. Ukrainians president telling Europe last night they need to, quote, wake up. What would that entail? Let's ask Fred Kemp. He's president and CEO of the Atlantic Council. And Fred, of course, I'd like to stay in our lane here as this relates back to the markets. And European stocks just posted a 7% drop this week. They're worse since March of 2020, and they're absolutely bearing the brunt of this right now. Yeah, look, it, it, Ukraine is in Europe, and that is what Ukraine wants to be, is European, so we have to watch Europe very closely. Europe has not been a geopolitical actor since World War II, really, and it's now stepping up for the first time as a geopolitical actor. You're seeing the Germans doing things that none of us could have expected a couple of weeks ago, the move to 2% of defense spending, you know, a special um, defense uh, investment of $100 billion, uh, the freeing up of selling weapons to to Ukraine, the shutting down of North Stream 2 as an opportunity. Nobody could have expected that. But the question is, can this mark the end of European ambivalence in general toward being a ge geopolitical actor? Because we're going to be faced with this authoritarian challenge, not just for days and weeks, but for months and years. And so I think that's the real big question. Sure. The other question people are asking is, will they move to sanctioning of oil and gas in one way or another. And right now, I don't see, think you see any, any uh, point in that direction. 
But if the atrocities become more apparent, if Russia really escalates even further than it has, I think more, there will be more public pressure on Europe to act. But that's where the rubber hits the road, Fred. I mean, this is where Angela Merkel left office with over a 70 percent approval rating and yet was the person in some ways responsible for Germany's dependence on Russian natural gas here. I mean, what is what should we look to Europe to do, it, given the prices that they're paying right now, to ensure that they have energy security for the decade to come if they are going to take this more muscular stance against Russia? The transition is going to take some time. Uh, you've got uh, a majority of the coal for Germany coming from um, from Russia. You've got 55% of gas and the majority of oil. Uh, Italy gets 40% of its gas from Russia. So this will not change overnight. So they, they just have to understand that this dependence is a geopolitical downside. And they have to fix it. Over the short term, uh, there's also the question of weapons. Uh, there are MiGs, Suhoi's, different bombers that are in uh, the European Union, but the eastern part of it, can that reach um, uh, uh, Ukraine on time? There's a great need for javelins. There's a great need for drones. Mainly that's coming from Turkey. A uh, great need for stingers. Uh, can that get to Ukraine on time? The longer that this is extended, the more it's going to help Ukraine. But in the meantime, Russia is making progress. It's making slow progress. It's making ugly progress. And we're all watching whether they go, what people are calling full Chechnya, whether they really, really double down and send everything in their military might at Ukraine, which would turn it much nastier even than it is now. If the Europeans are spending more on defense, if they're spending more on energy, at least for now, where is that money coming from? What are they spending less on? I, I doubt they can increase taxes or do anything more on, on that front, can they? Uh, the taxes are pretty high in Europe, as you know, the, the growth is not particularly fast. Uh, what they can do is they can ease their debt levels. The U European Union has set debt levels at a certain level. Uh, the Germans are already moving in that direction. And you can certainly lighten that up for a while uh, to get to 2% of defense spending and above. Uh, but you're right, there's not, a, not, there's not a lot of room to do things in the long run unless you're changing certain things structurally for sure. And where does this leave the U.S., Fred? So I've heard investors who actually are recommending exposure to European stocks for the long run right now because they like all of what you're describing that is taking place there, the way that they're spending more on defense, that they've come together uh, to some extent. But what about the U.S. in the meantime? We're pretty uh, insulated from everything that's happening. Does that make us a relatively stronger performing economy or do we still have to kind of worry about more commodity headwinds? So I think we have to worry about commodity headwinds. You know, 7% of our oil comes from Russia. There's no chance that the U.S. is going to uh, cut off that unless the Europeans act, and it doesn't look like the Europeans are going to act for now. What's positive is we have not worked this closely with this sort of unity across the Atlantic for a long time. You could imagine a, a trade investment deal growing out of this, maybe a, a, green invest, a, a green technology deal. Some people are talking about that so far. Republicans and Democrats alike haven't liked trade deals very much, but I don't know how you compete with China uh, and Russia, but particularly China, if we don't start opening our minds uh, more to trade deals. Uh, and I think if you see European defense spending going up, those are sectors where one uh, would be smart to invest, because I think it's inevitable uh, that defense spending in Europe will go up, uh, go up in, in the wake of all of this. Absolutely. Fred, great to have you on today. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kelly. Fred Kemp of the Atlantic Council.
There's no doubt that the taking of the nuclear plant in Ukraine has raised the stakes in Russia's war. What could Putin's next move be here? And are there any off-ramps? Let's bring in Nina Khrushcheva. She's professor of international affairs. She's the granddaughter of former Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev. Nina, it's great to see you again. I just want to start with your main point here, which to me at least is that you see this as so far enhancing Putin's popularity at home. In some, yes, thank you, Kelly. In in some quarters, among some people, it, it really does it enhance because, you know, when the war is being fought, but it's not called a war at all, it's called the special operation. So the Russians are technically not knowing that the city is being bombed and uh, whatever is happening on the ground is presented as the um, uh, Ukrainian insurgents uh, who want to oppress and abuse the Ukrainian people. Also, essentially in the last 10 days, uh, yes, 10 days, every single outlet that was speaking the other version of the events rather than the the Kremlin version of events now has been uh, completely banned. The radio stations, the news TV, rain TV, the Echo Moscow, the Echo of Moscow just banned not only from their radio waves, but also from YouTube. So it's all closed. Uh, I think now the Facebook is next, or maybe it already is, uh, uh, has happened. So no information is supposed to trickle down uh, for the Russian people to hmm. be told what really is going on. So they now feel, and with all the force of the sanctions, many feel that they just have to rally around the flag. You just mentioned it. We're going to get that breaking news right now, actually. Nina, stay right there. Let's bring in Julia Borston. She has the latest on Facebook's operations in Russia. Julia? That is absolutely right. Russia has blocked Facebook in the country. Russia's media regulator saying that they have seen 26 cases of discrimination against Russian media and information resources, um, and that in recent days, the social network has restricted access to accounts from Ria Novotsky, news agency Sputnik, Russia Today, and others, saying these restrictions are prohibited by federal law um, on measures to influence persons involved in violations of fundamental human rights and freedoms. So that this is what the Russian Regulator is saying we have reached out to Facebook's parent company Meta for comment on this. Um, this, of course, comes Kelly as Meta and Facebook have been working to tamp down on misinformation and disinformation coming out of some of those Russian propaganda, uh, Russian-owned media companies. Guys, back over to you. Julia, thank you so much. Nina, this is exactly what you were just describing. So, for people who thought the headline was going to be Facebook blocks Russia, now it's Russia blocks Facebook, and you think the primary reason here is more or less to control the flow of information that gets to the Russian people. Absolutely. It is an absolute control of the information. Maybe uh, it seems to me that even on your program a few days ago, I did say that the Russians like to reciprocate. So if they're sanctioned, they're going to sanction back or whatever they're going to forbid back. Uh, say the Russians cannot travel to Europe because they cannot get visas. So Russians would say you cannot get travel to Europe because the whole world is against us and, and something like that. So basically it seems that uh, for now, at least Putin has doubled down, not only on or doubling down, not only on, on the Ukraine assault, but also on the complete assault and complete suppression of whatever was left of uh, Russian civil society. In fact, yesterday, uh, the oldest human rights organization, very important human rights organization, Memorial, uh, which was founded by Andriy Sakharov, the father of human rights, uh, was closed, was searched 
maybe it's today even, uh, I don't remember exactly, was searched, people were harassed, uh, the, those who work there. So it really is a very important message to, uh, to the Russians altogether, is that you take our version of events or you really will not have any potential life whatsoever. It's going to be North Korea on steroids. That's the message of Putin. And how is this plays out, Nina? Do you read the activity of the uh, Ukrainian nuclear plant? Well, it, also very interesting because in the Russian version of events, it, it's actually uh, the Ukrainian saboteurs who did this and then blame it for the world, for the Russians to be guilty of. So basically, it, it's, it's almost like Alice, whatever, Russia through the looking glass. So you enter this alternate reality and then that reality is presented as if it is a real one. And it does seem that most of it reality is playing out in Vladimir Putin's head because uh, yesterday he spoke and was very firm and uh, very kind of uh, very forceful at saying that everything is going according to plan and we are eliminating the Nazi elements in, in Ukraine and we are not going to stop until the very end. In fact, he spoke to Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, and reiterated uh, the same thing without even showing that he's willing to um, uh, to back off. And it does seem that this whole play with the potential nuclear preparedness is that, is that do you really want to test me how far I can go? And finally, what would you say to those who are hoping there's still some way for a swift resolution here? Well, clearly it is not. There is no swift resolution. And uh, hopefully, I mean, there were two rounds between uh, negotiations between Ukraine and Russia, and they are uh, preparing for the third one. And there's still, as always, the uh, very conflicting information coming coming out of the from the Ukrainians and the Russians. So far, they created those uh, evacuation corridors. They haven't started working, but hopefully they will. And according to the Ukrainians, the Russians now no longer want to denazify Ukraine. That is, we don't know what it is, but something that Nazis are in Ukraine, but not according to Vladimir Putin. So he continues to want to denazify. So this conflict seems to be uh, actually gearing up rather than slowing down, at least for now. And we'll leave it on that sobering note. Nina, it's great to see you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Nina Khrushcheva. Still ahead, the White House has yet to decide whether or not to sanction or blockade Russian oil. One analyst just crunched the numbers and says if the world wants to stop using Russian barrels, they'll have to pay $200 per barrel to do so. He joins me next to make his case with WTI hovering around 111, 112 now. We're up 20% in just the past two weeks. We'll also speak to former CEA chair Jason Furman about today's jobs report. But first, I'll run you through the latest data points on inflation and the economy. And as we head to break, take a quick look at the Dow down 230 points, S&P down 37, NASDAQ still the worst performer other than the Russell. They're both down about one and a half percent. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. 
Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. While there's been a lot of calls to sanction Russian oil companies, for now the White House doesn't appear to be on board. We don't have a strategic interest in reducing the global supply of energy. Uh, and that would raise prices at the gas pump for the American people uh, around the world um, because it would reduce the supply available. And it's as simple as less supply raises prices. How disruptive would such a move be? Our next guest crunched the numbers and they're not pretty. Joining me now is Chris Wheaton. He's an oil and gas analyst at Stiefel. Chris, welcome. It's good to have you. $200 a barrel. How do we get to that figure? Well, Kelly, it's pretty simple. If you want to cut all of Russia out of the global oil market, and remember Russia is the world's second largest oil exporter, just behind Saudi Arabia, at about seven and a half million barrels a day, you need to pull all the levers of supply to put on as much oil into the market as possible. But you also need to kill demand because that supply isn't going to be enough to uh, push all of that seven and a half million barrels a day out of the market. And if you look at where demand destruction kicks in, if you look back in 2008 when oil prices were last, you know, at a peak of you know, $140, $150 a barrel, adjust that for inflation, that's how you get to $200 a barrel today. And that's not a price that really we think the global economy can afford. Quick note on this, because there's been a lot of discussion about that this week. How much demand destruction did we see during 2008? And could you disentangle it from the fact that the U.S. economy was already in recession and about to hit the, the depth of the financial crisis? Well, it's difficult to disentangle you know, one factor from another in terms of the economic crash. The real impact came in the second half of 2008, where we saw uh, the, the global financial crisis really kick in, and particularly, obviously, in that period of the, the uh, September and then leading into the fourth quarter. Uh, you are talking about having to take... Um, no, we think that not just demand growth out this year, i.e. bring that down to zero, but probably take another 2 million barrels a day off the market on top of that wow. if you want to take all of Russian oil off the market. That takes oil demand back to you know, 2017, 2018 levels. That's a measure of just how much you've got to kill demand if you want to keep Russian oil um, off the oil market globally. And this is a really important point because what you're saying is there's really no other way to fill the demand with other barrels from other sources. You have to just basically get to such a pain point that people stop. You know, they're literally driving less or businesses are using a little bit less. What would the impact be? Maybe this is a useless thought experiment, but if only the U.S. stopped its imports of Russian oil and maybe we hold the rest of global demand neutral or global supply neutral. Well, actually, the biggest customers of Russian oil are unsurprisingly uh, Europe first. It's about 30% of oil imports into Europe and also China, where it's about 10 to 15% uh, of oil imports. Um, if you're going to reduce Russian oil demand, that's where the, the, the customers are going to first you know, see the, um, see the action, action there. I think we're already starting to see that. You know, just in the last hour, uh, there was reports of a cargo of Urals crude, that's the standard Russian blend from West Siberia, trading at uh, 
Brent less $28 a barrel. So it's about three quarters of the sticker price you see on the screen. Now, that in 20 years as an oil analyst, I've never seen that kind of discount uh, before. So it looks like market players are already you know, shunning Russian oil and uh, you know, trying to, you know, with the fear of sanctions is starting already to push oil out of the market, irrespective of whether sanctions get imposed or not. True. And so, again, $200 a barrel, you say, is the price of freedom from those Russian barrels. What happens if we are muddling through instead and we continue to have some supply, although, as you mentioned, with the major asterisk, where do you think the oil price would be headed then? I still see there's risk up to sort of 120, I'm talking Brent terms here, so 100, say 130 to $150 a barrel. Um, quite easily, I think. Uh, you've got to pull an awful lot of levers of supply uh, to, to if, if you want, as you say, Kelly, to muddle through, to be able to offset some of that Russian supply. And I think that sort of muddling through scenario, you're talking about needing all of OPEC barrels back, um, US shale to uh, keep uh, accelerating its drilling. And I suspect we'll see more of that as we uh, go into the rest of this year. Plus, also, you might even need some barrels back from Iran as well, um, because Iran currently is exporting around a million barrels a day, almost exclusively to China. I think we might need all of another million barrels a day from Iran as well, which is kind of ironic given the circumstances. Uh, And you might just muddle through with Russia then selling oil uh, to basically China and India, probably as its major um, export markets then. That's how I see the muddle through scenario kind of playing out. Yeah, again, not a great scenario for what U.S. consumers are going to pay. CEO of Pioneer telling the Financial Times, even as we speak, that U.S. would be unable to replace crude supplies from Russia. The EU saying they might be at agreement on the nuclear deal this weekend. The pressure is absolutely on. Chris, it's been great to have you. Thanks so much. Thanks for your time, Kelly. Chris Wheaton joining us from Stiefel today. All right, still ahead, we'll check on the semiconductors on pace for their worst quarter since 2018. They're down 17% to start the year. And we'll look at the chip makers and suppliers as one price of a key metal continues to skyrocket. But first, last night's attack on Europe's largest nuclear power plant is sparking fears about the continued use of nuclear energy as a power source. We'll tell you which group of stocks is seeing a sharp drop on those worries and whether that's warranted. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. 
Welcome back, everybody. Dow's down 246 points right now. So we're off the session lows, but still hanging in with these declines to close out possibly a fourth straight week of declines for the major averages. Let's check the sectors this week where we see energy and utilities the biggest gainers. Financials, the biggest underperformer, down 5%, makes it their worst week. Uh, longest weekly losing streak, I should say, since 2020. Stocks with the most revenue exposure to Russia are mostly lower today. And for the week, EPAM is the biggest decliner after pulling its guidance on Monday due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They have a big tech presence there. The stock's down 47% this week. Cities Investor Day this week also piling on to broader concerns about their future amid rates and Russia. Philip Morris, Mondelez, PepsiCo also have a lot of exposure. Checking on some of the speculative tech plays as rates have fallen this week, ARK's Invest, ARK Invest flagship ARK-K Innovation ETF is lower again today, down 10% for the week, down 35% this year, not getting much of a reprieve, as you can see, from rates. It's still on pace for its worst quarter ever. Now to Christina Parts and Evelis for a CNBC News update. Christina? Thank you, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. The world narrowly averted a nuclear catastrophe. That's how the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. is describing Russia's attack on a huge Ukrainian nuclear power plant. The comment was made at a rare emergency meeting of the U.N. Security Council. While debate continues at the U.N., G7 foreign ministers have issued a joint statement condemning Russian attacks on Ukrainian civilians and infrastructure and calling for additional sanctions against Russia. On the news, Ukrainians fighting back and efforts by some Americans to send guns to help in that fight. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. A judge has approved a fix to the NFL's billion-dollar concussion settlement with players. Many black players were denied payments for dementia because of race-based testing that said black people start with a lower cognitive ability. The changes will allow many retired players to resubmit their claims and potentially add $100 million or more to the NFL's legal costs. And Florida Governor Rick DeSantis says he will sign a bill banning abortions after 15 weeks. The state legislature passed the bill last night. The ban is similar to one enacted in Mississippi and under review by the Supreme Court. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Christina, thanks. Still ahead, stocks under pressure with the Ukraine war overshadowing a strong employment report. More jobs, rising participation rates, and slowing wage growth. Does it all give the Fed the clear to be aggressive with rate hikes? We'll discuss that next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. It's been a big week, a big couple months, really, for economic data. And we want to look at how it's all stacking up. So here's a quick sense of some of the biggest, most consequential reports that we've had lately. And I have good and bad here, not so much on their own merits, but as it relates to the dilemma that the Fed is now facing. So let's start with the jobs report this morning. Super strong, 678,000. You think, well, that's amazing. That's great, right? But you know what? It, it's going to veer over here towards the bad category because it was almost too strong. We'll have more on that in a second. Average hourly earnings. Well, that was good, right? I mean, it was, it was not too hot. It was not too cold. 5.1% year on year. This is going in the middle camp towards the bad side. That's still a very high number that is above the, about the 4% level where it could keep feeding inflation pressures and make the Fed respond. Case Shiller, really this should say CoreLogic. We had the CoreLogic home price report coming out. You know, plus 19% year on year is great if you own a home, but it's really kind of bad for what we want to see happening with the market right now. The whole point of the Fed's tightening is to actually raise mortgage rates, take some of the steam out of home prices. The opposite is happening. Mortgage rates are down this week. Home prices at a new record. And finally, supplier deliveries. This one unquestionably bad, rose another about a half point 
to 66.2 in the ISM. That tells you that companies are still seeing real supply chain problems that'll feed inflationary pressures and also keep this economy a little bit out of whack right now. So on this lovely note, let's bring in Jason Furman. He's professor of practice. Let me clear this uh, first. He's professor of practice at the Harvard Kennedy School and former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Jason, it's great to have you here on a day like this and at a time like this when everyone assumes because of the severity of the Ukraine crisis, the Fed's going to have to back off. But this data to me suggests that they might have to press forward. What do you think? Yeah, the U.S. economy has an extraordinary amount of momentum, you know, adding nearly 600,000 jobs per month month in and month out, no matter what's going on. Um, Jay Powell said they're going to raise rates by a quarter point at their March meeting, and this virtually guarantees that. Yeah, it guarantees a quarter point hike. But, you know, what about their just real world reaction to unpredictable events like the Ukrainian crisis? Why can't they just afford to sit back and go, you know what, we're just going to wait a little while, see how that one turns out before we press ahead with this tightening? Look, the last time we had a financial crisis in Russia was 25 years ago. The Fed ended up cutting rates by 75 basis points to deal with long-term capital management and the fallout of that Russian um, debt crisis. Nothing like that's going to happen this time, but it may give them a little bit of pause on the path they'd otherwise be. Um, We'll see. By May, by June, if the uncertainty associated with Ukraine is down, If inflation remains hot, which I expect it to be, um, we might start seeing some half-point hikes at some meetings this year, but they don't need to decide that now. Sure, but would you basically say they are undeniably behind the curve here? I mean, it's incredible how strong the jobs market is. You remember this. You go back and look at the recoveries after the last couple of recessions. We rarely ever had a print like what we saw this month, let alone 10 straight months of prints over 400,000, let alone this late into the labor market's recovery. Look, there's no doubt they were behind the curve. Um, They've been catching up quickly. They understand that the problem our economy faces is about inflation right now, not about employment right now. And the most important thing is that they're telegraphing that steady path, hopefully telegraphing that every meeting they're going to be raising rates until inflation gets much better under control than it has been. Yeah. So let's talk about wages, which, again, we saw them basically flat in February from January. They're still at 5.1% year on year. Is it your expectation that that's going to drop below 4% anytime soon? And what do you think is the key level to watch there? Yeah, I thought inflation was the wages was the big news. If I was looking at it from the perspective of the Fed, um, I would actually have that more in the good category um, than you did. <laughs> we already knew we had high wage growth for most of the months last year that are in the 12-month number. The big news was there was basically no growth that happened in the month of February. I think that's an aberration. This thing bounces around from month to month. I expect wages around five and a half or six percent growth this year. If we get that, that's consistent with inflation of around four percent this year. But, you know, maybe it'll be lower than that. Certainly employers, um, if you ask them, they aren't planning to raise wages by as much as I just said. Yeah, I just, you can't put it in the good camp if you still think we could be seeing wages that high this year, right? Like that means that that just it's not enough to call it a trend. Oh, just to be clear, February, you know, if you had asked me yesterday, I would have said 6% wage growth this year. After I saw the February number, I'm now down to 5.8% wage growth for this year. So a little bit less inflation than I might have <laughs> thought coming out of this report, but only a little bit less. Only a little. Jason, thanks so much for your time today. It's good to see you.
See ya. Jason Furman. We got a news alert on Russian stocks. Dom Chu is here with the story. Dom? They're being removed from a lot of indices. That's the news here. So this is S&P Dow Jones Indices, which is the company that, that keeps and maintains many of these country-specific and equity indices all over the world. What they are announcing today is that they are going to remove all of the stocks that are either listed in or domiciled in Russia from many of the standard indices that have them in, as a part of them, including emerging markets indices, certain country-specific ones. Instead, what they're going to do is take all those Russian equities and make them their own standalone entity, if you will. And the reason is pretty straightforward and simple. There's no trading in these Moscow equities in Moscow or anywhere around the world right now. They've been halted in many places around the world, including London and here in New York. So the accessibility of those stocks is very much in question. And we don't know when they're going to trade again or in which locations. So because of that, they are going to remove all of them so that people can still invest in these indices without having to deal with the headaches right now of trying to figure out whether those stocks actually have liquidity or not, whether they should be investing them or not. Russia becomes its own standalone country entity. All the other indices kind of adapt and maintain their other constituents besides Russia, Kelly. So a big development here. By the way, this all takes place ahead of the market open on March 9th. We'll bring you more as we know more. Back over to you. Wow, Dom, thank you very much, our Dom Chu. Still ahead, uranium stocks are selling off following last night's attack on the Ukrainian nuclear plant. One of the ETFs tracking the space is down more than 5% right now. We're going to look at why, which stocks are most impacted and why investor sentiment could shift for the long run. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. The attack on Europe's biggest nuclear power plant last night, sending uranium stocks tumbling. Pippa Stevens is here now with the reasons and some of the biggest movers. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. Uranium stocks posting big declines as last night's attack reignites worries about the future of nuclear power. Jonathan Hinzi from nuclear research firm UXC saying the crisis could make investors scared of uranium-related stocks for a while amid fears that nuclear power is still too big of a risk. Two ETFs that track the space, the Global X Uranium Fund and the North Shore Global Uranium Mining Fund, both down sharply at this hour. The companies losing the most include Cameco Corporation, NextGen Energy, Paladin Energy and Denison Mines. Giant Kazadaprem holding up a little bit better here down one and a half percent. But Adam Radman from Segre Capital Management, which invests in the space, telling me that this was not a nuclear incident. And what we're seeing is simply a knee-jerk reaction. Another uranium investor saying that while last night's attack will grab a lot of headlines, it's not actually going to change decisions around building out nuclear. Prior to today, these stocks had actually been moving higher, and both ETFs are up about 11% in the last month. This, of course, comes as Europe reevaluates its energy policies. The IEA yesterday released a 10-point plan on how to move the EU away from Russian gas, and it includes maximizing output from existing nuclear plants. Kelly? So come on over, Pippa. What's so interesting about this timing, and maybe not coincidental for the conspiracy theorists, is that People were just having this conversation, you mentioned the IEA, but even Germany, about whether to bring those nuclear plants back online. Now a situation like this comes about and you wonder, well, is it just unique to this, you know, unfortunate war in Ukraine? And is there still a strong case for other European countries to press ahead or not? 
Yeah, I mean, nuclear's always been very polarizing, and you mentioned Germany, and some of the regulators want to bring, it, bring it, some of their reactors back online, but there's been a lot of pushback against that. But there's other countries like France, Poland, they're also exploring nuclear. And another key player is, you know, Russia. They control about 35% of uranium enrichment. Hmm. So that's another factor at play here when we talk about moving away from dependency on Russia. So there's a lot of factors. Energy policy is very complex and very slow moving, as you know. Yeah, and the stocks, though, a little quicker to tell us what they think is going on. <laughs> That Pippa, is thanks very much, Pippa Stevens. Still ahead, the major averages are on track for their fourth down day in five and their fourth straight week of losses. But despite the Ukraine war and inflation concerns, one portfolio manager staying positive on growth and the U.S. consumer will tell you where she's buying next. Welcome back. It's been a seesaw week. Stocks are moving lower again. The Dow's down 302 in what's been a very back and forth pattern. What are we talking about? On Tuesday, we fell 597 points. On Wednesday, we rallied by 596. With inflation high, rate hikes lurking, and this escalating war in Europe, where does it leave investors? Here to help us sort out the issues is Joanne Feeney. She's a partner and portfolio manager at Advisors Capital Management. Joanne, it's good to see you. You're kind of keeping your head down and focusing on the U.S. consumer. Is that going to be fruitful in this environment? You know, Kelly, we've seen a lot of changes, obviously, over the last few months. And, um, you know, the growth opportunity for investors clearly is is temporarily being, you know, disrupted. The consumer does remain strong in the U.S., but these higher inflation numbers are eating away at their purchasing power. So one really has to be careful to figure out where are the lower end of the income distribution consumers going to have to cut back. And by contrast, if you're looking for growth opportunities, you look towards where our firms spending. We saw, for example, Broadcom report last night, excellent numbers, outstanding guidance, all on the back, partly, of enterprise spending continuing to grow because they deferred so many infotech investments hmm. for their infrastructure. And, and you know that's a great place to look. We've owned that stock for a long time. We see more appreciation there, and it provides a really nice dividend yield for those looking for some income. Yeah. especially during these volatile times. And talk about an under-the-radar story in the past 24 hours. You know, that's barely going to get a mention. And again, that can kind of be an opportunity. You do have some obvious plays here. You would do cyber defense a little bit in that area, right? Yeah, we've owned these for a long time. They, they serve a number of purposes. First of all, they're a bit of insurance in portfolios against just this kind of disruption in markets. But also, they're secular growth opportunities. A smaller company like Kratos, for example, uh, makes uh, drones of the targeting and, and unmanned um, wingmen for uh, flying alongside of uh, piloted jets. You know, they, they do a lot of work, obviously, for the government um, internationally as well as in the U.S., and they're obviously seeing a big lift here because drones are probably one of the biggest areas of increased defense spending around the world over the next several years. You also have some plays, you mentioned income and inflation protection, where energy banks and real estate are kind of the go-to sectors there. I am uh, surprised to see or, or appreciate seeing that you're looking in some names like PayPal for opportunistic ways to start moving on this big drop we've seen in tech. I mean, where, where else might you be sort of poking around for investors? You know, Kelly, there's a number of, of things that have happened since November, right? We saw that big tech sell-off in anticipation of a strong economic recovery and rising interest rates. 
that world has changed a little bit, and, and not just because of the Ukraine-Russia situation. People are starting to realize that growth is going to slow down. And so these sell-offs of these high multiple stocks, you know, really did create opportunities. PayPal, for example, has this short-term headwind from eBay rolling off. But the underlying numbers are very strong, and we're seeing companies and, and consumers switch more towards digital payments around the world. PayPal is so well positioned for that, and we think it's a real opportunity here. And beyond PayPal, a company like Encino or Q2, also in that fintech space, really got hurt by the multiple contraction we've seen since uh, since November. So, you know, looking beyond the current disruption, which is horrible, the U.S. economy does remain in a recovery mode. We saw that in the jobs numbers this morning. As an economist, I can tell you that there's a lot of good things going on in the U.S. economy that do give support to equities at this point in time. But, you know, we're in a period of real disruption, a risk off trade. You can see that in the 10 year Treasury. But at the back half of the year, we do expect a lot of these growth names to be the ones that outperform. All right, Joanne, we appreciate having you today. Thank you so much. You bet. Joanne Feeney with Advisors Capital Management. Both Ukraine and Russia are critical suppliers for the chip industry, and it's having a big impact on the sector already. We'll look at the moves and the growing divide we're witnessing. We're back in a moment here on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. We have an update on Russia blocking Facebook, which has just happened in the past hour or so. Let's get back out to Julia Borston. Julia? Meta parent Facebook, um, Facebook parent Meta just now responding to the news that Facebook will be blocked in Russia. Nick Clegg, president of global affairs for Meta, saying, quote, soon millions of ordinary Russians will find themselves cut off from reliable information, deprived of their everyday ways of connecting with family and friends and silenced from speaking out, saying we will continue to do everything we can to restore our services so they remain available to people who safely and securely express themselves and organize for action. Action. Now, Kelly, I think it's worth noting that Facebook um, has an estimated seven and a half million users in the country of Russia, according to insider intelligence, that's much smaller than both YouTube and Instagram. According to insider intelligence, Instagram has about 53 million estimated users in the country, and YouTube is much bigger with about 77 million. But still, Facebook, a very important platform here. You see Meta shares down about one and a half percent. No word on whether uh, the Russian regulators plan to block Instagram as well, Kelly. Julia, for the viewers who are wondering how we got to this about face where the U.S. firms were pulling out of Russia. Now Russia is blocking access to some of our companies. As Nina Khrushcheva put it earlier this hour, this is an information war in some ways. And she believes they're trying to control the information that the Russian people are getting about this conflict. To that note, have we heard anything about Twitter or other similar services? Well, look, I think what's going on here, Kelly, is exactly that. Facebook has made a big push to try to tamp down on inf misinformation and disinformation, and as a result, has been fact-checking RT, which is the Russia state-controlled media arm, and some of those other uh, media arms that are spreading propaganda, because Facebook has been fact-checking them and then limiting um, the spread of content from those platforms in response Russia is saying we don't want to have you limit um, our spread of content here. So I think, you know, Facebook is in a really uh, a, a key point right now in its trajectory after the being sort of witnessing so much misinformation on its platform back in 2016 and really now trying to show that it's made progress on those issues. So I think this is really about propaganda and who gets to spread uh, information here, Kelly. Yeah, it's to the point on Twitter, within the past week or so, there were scare, uh, industry reports that maybe it was being blocked in Russia sporadically. Should we expect now that 
to, to ramp up and maybe even to ramp up against, I don't know what major news outlets are still operating there. Well, yeah, so the access to, up until this point, access to Twitter and Facebook had been limited. This is different in that it's a full-out ban. Yeah. We'll have to see if there is a full-out ban of Twitter as well, um, which would obviously have a really big impact, Kelly. Yeah, absolutely. Julia, thank you so much for covering this for us, our Julia Borston, and that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.